You are listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. For a special event this November the 1st, I will be reading from my book Recovery as well as performing my hit show, Rebirth. If you buy tickets to come and see it, you will get both. You will get a little bit of both. Go to russellbrand.ctickets.com or eventim.co.uk and use the discount code SKIN to get 10% off the price of this unique, possibly spectacular, undoubtedly bizarre event. Recovery and rebirth bound together. Ah, what glory, majesty. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Shalane McRae is an American writer and activist and as First Lady of New York City is married to current Mayor Bill de Blasio. Shalane created Thrive NYC, the most comprehensive mental health plan of any city or state in the nation and she's recognised nationally as a powerful champion of mental health reform. Additionally, she spearheads the city's Thrive Coalition of mayors with representation of more than 150 cities from all 50 states, advocating for a more integrated and better funded behavioural health system. Shalane McRae, thank you very much for joining me for Under the Skin. I'm very grateful to you for making time. It's lovely to be in New York City speaking to a member of the first family. Why is mental health so important to you? Well, first, Russell, welcome to New York City and congratulations on your new book. And thank you so much for speaking out on uh, addiction and mental illness. It's, it's so important to me because so many people are suffering. So many people are struggling. We've got a culture of stigma uh, in, in our country about, well, everywhere, about mental illness and, men- and substance misuse. And, and we've got to do something about it because it's all treatable. Um, it's part of the human condition to have these diseases. It's all they are. They're all treatable. Um, and, and I just, I, I can't praise you enough for, for talking about it. Uh, we've got to do more of that. People of your stature, uh, stepping up and, and talking about your life and what you've gone through really helps make other people feel comfortable about their own struggles and makes them uh makes it easier for them to talk about their own their own uh, struggles and it, it if you can't talk about something you can't seek a solution to it so I, I thank you for stepping up and telling your story that's a lovely way to start an interview with a, uh, by thanking me I'm very very uh, grateful to you for saying that now you mentioned stigmatization what is your personal opinion on the basis for stigmatization why do you think that mental health is so heavily stigmatized uh, along with addiction related issues well, you know, I, I think part of it is that you you can't see it the way you can see if someone has a broken leg or if someone is, um, you know, someone has a stomach ache. It's much, it's, it's easier to see, it's easier to recognize. 
our, our, our science, though, has come a long way. So we know the signs and symptoms of, of mental illness. We know the signs and symptoms of, of substance misuse, but it's not something that we have a tradition of talking about. So, you know, most of us don't grow up, you know, understanding this, um, understanding or having a vocabulary to talk about it. Uh, and again, if you can't talk about it, you can't reach for solutions. Stigma is... Um, you know, it's like having a, a scarlet A written on your on your back, right? For for addict or um, especially um, men, if see it as a sign of weakness, mm. as a a sign of being undisciplined. It's something that should be you should be able to overcome. Uh, it's it's um I, you know how did it get that way? It, it's it's hard to say. Um, why does it stay that way? Given all the science, it's it's hard to say. But it, it it is it is this way. We've got a huge problem with stigma. I think you touched on two important points. One is that it's invisible and therefore difficult to quantify. There's something a bit frightening. Uh, having like suffered from mental health issues for mm-hmm. most of my life and. I, I, you know, graduate into addiction, and I think it's important that you said that you know, before. You have said that the distinction, the boundary between mental health and addiction, is an imaginary one. But addiction is, is essentially a mental health issue. One of the reasons I think that stigmatization around addiction is uh, so prominent is because drugs are illegal. You're a criminal if you use drugs. So that's sort of an interesting aspect of stigmatization that you're automatically criminalized by its use. What's your opinion about a, a, a more medical approach, a more therapeutic approach to addiction as opposed to a criminal judicial one? Oh, well, I, I certainly favor a, a public health approach to uh. addiction. I think that we have delegated responsibility for uh, all those who suffer from mental illness and addiction to our criminal justice system, which is just so wrong. And we know here in this country that uh, roughly, because we don't know exactly, roughly 40% of the folks who are in jail and prison suffer from a mental illness. 40%? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. That seems like medieval, doesn't it? It's some it, sort of laughable. You know, sometimes you like think, what will people in the future think of our cultures and civilizations? It's one of those things, isn't it? It's one it of those is. emblems. Like, oh, they used to lock up mentally ill people mm-hmm. or leave them to be homeless. Those it's, were the main options. Barbaric. It's, it's truly barbaric. And we really are... Um, barbarians when it comes to uh, mental health. So what's the uh, intention behind Thrive, Thrive NYC, your Mm -hmm. mental health and addiction campaign? Can you explain it to me? Because I don't know very much about it. Yes, it's very simple. We Thrive NYC is a citywide program to change the culture around mental health um, and to bring new solutions, um, make solutions accessible to, to people where they live, where they learn, where they worship, where they go to school. We want to make sure that there's just one door that people have to go through to get help. They shouldn't have to, um, they shouldn't have, it shouldn't be so hard. Um, Mm. Like I've talked to people all over the city and, and, you know, first thing they say is like, this is something that I've never talked to, uh, talked to anyone about because of the stigma. And the next thing they say is, well, you know, even if I could talk about it, I don't know where to go. And so with Thrive, uh, we've launched a helpline uh, called NYC Well. And if you're in New York, you can call one 
888-NYC-WELL and talk to a trained counselor who will connect you to um, a peer counselor or to a provider. Uh, we'll make the appointment for you and call back and make sure you got there. That's a brilliant service. Well, I could mm-hmm. do that. If I was in mm-hmm. New York City, which I am, and if I was feeling a bit mm-hmm. down, which I sometimes do, mm-hmm. I could even use it. Yes, And absolutely. I would be put through to... A, a, a trained counselor, right? Who mm. And who would speak your language because we have counselors who speak English, Spanish, Cantonese, Mandarin, and we have translation. Would they be okay with the accent? I would insist on it being someone that spoke in very clean British. (laughs) (laughs) I need my mental health catered for by Julie Andrews. (laughs) I'm sure we could help you. No one is turned away, and and we we do have translation in more than 200 languages. That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Is it expensive? No, it's free. It's free, it's confidential. And we make sure that we connect people to to some, you know, whatever they need. We'll make sure that it's affordable. Presumably in your very grand and deservedly grand sounding uh, position as First Lady of New York City, which sounds sort of uh, like a sort of contemporary hip hop track. Um, <laughs> do you, What is it that about this issue, above all others, because you could have turned to anything, uh, climate change, uh, uh, obviously you're a person of colour, there's all manner of issue, sexuality, sort of like I, I understand that that's a, a, another issue that you've been outspoken about. What is it about mental health and addiction that, that uh, made it your priority? Well, I wanted to... You're right. I could have chosen anything. And I wanted to work on something that affected everyone. I wanted to work on something that connected all of the issues that I care about, you know, education, domestic violence, um, criminal justice reform. I wanted something that would have great impact on the people of New York City. And so what is that? That's, that's mental health. It affects all of those areas. It affects every single person, no matter what their zip code is, wherever they live, whatever neighborhood they're in. It affects everybody. We, you know, we have statistics. They say, well, one in five is affected. One in five New Yorkers has a mental illness or uh, sub- uses a, has a substance misuse disorder in any given year. But that doesn't tell you about the friends and the family members. It doesn't. You can't have a parent suffering from depression and it doesn't affect the whole family. Um, we're all touched by this. You know, I, I told you I speak all across the city, and every room I go and I ask people, how many of you, you know, how many of you have been touched by mental illness or substance abuse? Please raise your hands. And it doesn't matter if the room has 200 people or if the room has 800 people in it. Everyone raises their hand. Wow. And it always blows me away, Russell, because I, it, because it's just this, the sheer enormity of the problem. And it's something we don't talk about. Mm. You know, uh, part of the idea behind my book is that addiction is just a, a one expression of mental health, something which we know you agree with, mm-hmm. and that it is epidemic in our times, not just in the way yes. that is discernible and identifiable, like the much spoken of opioid crisis mm-hmm. in your country, or the obvious and newly emerging facts around gambling and gambling addiction in Europe, or the obvious problems around eating disorders. These are the sort of like the identifiable top tier of addiction. But I'm beginning to think that mental health unseen is lurking in all our lives, as your uh, anecdotal mm-hmm. example demonstrates, even when 
When I think of the way that the news cycle works, the kind of stories that we read about on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. it speaks to me of a kind of social and cultural sickness and an invisible malady. People are desperate and unhappy. I even think, and it's obviously just my personal opinion, that... The, the election of Donald Trump is almost like an, an act of national self-harm, kind of self-hatred fueled by rage, the physical realisation of a kind of sickness. And when, like, a, a, as a foreigner watching the Charlottesville uh, protests or riots or disturbances or how, however they're correctly termed, mm-hmm. it seems like the manifest, like hatred is a kind of sickness. Right. It's a, a kind of sickness. So, oh, like, whilst we have identifiable addicts slumped in doorways or in their private bourgeois hells, we also have sort of court cultural, I think, illness at the level of a nation. What do you mm-hmm. think about that? No, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that you know all of this violence is, is not normal or whatever normal is. It's not, mm. not healthy for sure. Um, and there's a, a, a feeling of acceptance um, mm. on, on a large scale. And, and those who don't accept it, which, of course, I, I, I like to believe it's the majority, um, don't feel like they can do anything about it. And that leads to a tremendous amount of frustration. Mm. Uh, I think it's, um, you're right, I would, I would characterize it as a kind of national sickness at this point. It's very, um, it, it's very depressing to, to see. That's just why I feel like I need to take action because mm. I, you know, I, who could sit and watch this happen? Yes. Oh, I certainly can. I think providing the means for communication is such a vital part of it. I know that my own uh, struggles with mental health and addiction uh, are significantly eased by having access to people that understand whether that's professional counsellors or other addicts just like me, just being able to communicate, being able to share my pain, being able to talk on that level rather than continually broadcasting on the level of everything's okay, here we are living in our consumer paradise. Like, that it... it alleviates me to be able to talk normally Uh, and I do feel like it is a cultural condition I feel like consumerism and a kind of materialistic democratic culture you know like a sort of a very limited democracy I would say that sort of only gives you very limited uh, like options and alternatives and doesn't really reach the heart of what it is to be a human being where people can't talk about their feelings where people can't talk about their shame, isolation and loneliness, I think lead ineluctably to mental health issues and addiction issues. So I applaud this uh, Thrive NYC uh, idea. I think you're providing a valuable tool. But you you mentioned that one half of the problem, one aspect of the problem at least, is stigmatisation. The other aspect is surely funding. And like so many people that have need of these services aren't like me, like in my country as a privileged, well-off person. I have access now to the resources I need. That isn't the case for a lot of people. How is that contributing and do you have any ideas of how that could alter? Because when something is stigmatised, it's easy not to fund it. You know, that's like that's one right. of the one of the components. That's right. So how do you make changes and, and do you think in your position, well, you've made some change, do you think you can make further change? No, we're, we're making a, a lot of changes in New York City. Um, I think it begins here. It begins with making the changes that we can make um, in the city. And we do have funding to make uh, 
make the changes that we want to see. We've we've uh, we've launched fifty four different programs. Um, so wow. that, yeah, so we have uh, programs that are citywide, like NYC Well. Uh, we have uh, we're training people in mental health first aid. So that have you ever heard of mental health first aid? No, it's a, no. It's, a, it's, it's I'd a, like to know about mental health first aid. Well, I'd like to do it on myself. CPR for my crazy brain. That's exactly what it is. CP, it's like CPR, and and people can take this course. It's uh, seven hours, seven or eight hours, and they learn about all the you know signs and symptoms of mental illness and substance misuse and what to do about them, and it makes people feel more comfortable talking. about about the subject makes people helps people understand how to listen without judgment, how, what to do if someone is having a panic attack, how to recognize psychosis, and, and you really feel like you have some tools to work with after you finish this course. And we're, our goal is to train a quarter of a million New Yorkers. So that is part of changing the culture and and helping people to understand just how important this is. Um, so when they go to the voting booth, hopefully they're, they're voting for people who also see this as a priority. We have a mental health service corps where we're training physicians, psychologists, uh, gra- uh, social workers, uh, newly graduated social workers to um, work in communities, in low-income communities, and we're pairing them with primary care physicians, sending them to substance abuse clinics so they can work together, work so that there's integrated care. So a client doesn't have to go one place for this and, you know, substance misuse and another place for the rest of their body, which is Mm. totally ridiculous, um, and get the help that they need. We want people to have services in their neighborhoods. So that's why we've also enlisted clergy members. We're training clergy members in mental health first aid, and we've set up actually a learning center for them to learn more about mental health so that when people come to them, and people do, because they trust their their ministers, their rabbis, their imams, you know, they, they go to them, they talk to them. But they often don't know what to do when they know it's not about prayer. You know, maybe mm. they need some other services. Well, we want them to know what to do. So you're doing cross-faith training. Are you training Are you training ministers from various religions yes. simultaneously in that's groups? R- that's right. That's I want right. to go to that class. What's this? Like rabbis and imams and Christian ministers yeah. all hanging out. That's right. And they're basically dealing with the same problem and they have the same solution. That's right. And I, w- I want to tell you, we've had uh, two weekends of mental health um, this uh, this last spring in, in May, we had a weekend of faith where we had all of these houses of worship focus on mental health, uh, devoting part of their service to mental health, just talking about it. We had 2,000 houses of worship participate. 2,000. Oh, wow. And we had 40 cities actually join us as well through our Cities Thrive um, organization. Thrive seems to be very effective. You're proud of this, hey? I am proud of it because it's inspiring people. There's a great need out there, a great hunger for this information, for um, uh, understanding uh, this, because it's at the root of so many people's problems, right? They're not being able to have a healthy relationship, not being able to work, not being able to go to school or finish school. I mean, what can you do if you don't have your health, you don't have your mental health? You, What do you have? Nothing, really. Mm-hmm. And it can happen pretty quickly. I still, like, 
I find that over the course of any given day, there are moments. Look, I don't. Like, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm aware that I'm not in a ordinary position. I.e., I'm like unlike most people, I'm not poor. Unlike mm-hmm. most people. I'm famous, but like the, for a lot of my life, I was was poor and I wasn't famous. And to tell you the truth, there it is better being you know not poor. I'm not trying to make that argument, but there is definitely a continuum of the way that it's possible over the course of a day to get very very frustrated and angry for me. I have to be very careful about the way that I feel. Still, I really have to be aware of staying connected because it doesn't take a lot for me to experience like emotions that can be pretty destructive. When we're talking about drink and drugs one of the things i think is overlooked that people are dealing with the way they feel they're trying to medicate themselves excuse me and i don't think we'd have such significant and overwhelming problems if there weren't huge numbers of people that were dissatisfied and unhappy and this is beyond declared addicts and declared alcoholics and people that are au fait with their own mental health problems what i'm interested in shalane is that you as a person in a position of political prominence in a kind of like you because like that sort of even this language that's around it first lady of new york it's a very uh sort of uh, ornate and antiquated piece of language that implies that you are a sort of a paradigm and an example so how do you feel being uh to on some level a normal woman in a normal marriage with a normal family and having to deal with this stuff how are you dealing with the uh, emotional and mental strains of being in the public eye and there's a couple of security people in the corridor you've got a big crew here rolling with you like how are you dealing with that stuff like you know i speak as a person that's experienced varying degrees of celebrity over my life knowing that you're a normal person and knowing the ordinary suffering that all families have fallen to how do you communicate that how do you use that in your experience as a political figure well, you know, I think that it, uh, it it helps me understand what 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 other people go through. I don't feel disconnected from the person that I was before this. Uh, I'm a person who suffers from anxiety, um, and I'm a I'm a person who had parents who suffered from depression. Um, this this is not uh, theoretical to me. None of this that I'm talking about is theoretical. You're from like some normal working class background, aren't a- absolutely. you? Absolutely. Tell us a bit about it, will you? Well, I, I, I grew up, my, my parents, my, you know, my mother was um, a beautician, you know, she mm. did hair, she worked in a factory. Um, my father was a civilian employee at the uh, Air Force Base. Um, he served in the Army and, and um, yeah, I'm just from a working class origin, first girl in my family to go to college. And, um, How? She, House, yeah, how did scholarship, you end up? <laughs> <laughs> scholarship, and work. I worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I worked. What did you do at college? I went to Wellesley College in Western in uh, in Massachusetts. Mm. Mm-hmm. And what does that feel like? Some kind of escape? What were you learning there? What were you studying there? What I was, was your studying way English. I wanted to be a, a writer, and I mean, poetry was my my uh, first form of of communicating with with the world, and and because. There wasn't a lot of communication at home, and so I started writing. There was a lack of communication in the home. Yeah, so I started writing, writing about my feelings, and and that really saved me. It what really... type of stuff? What type of poetry? Like what? Poetry? Sylvia Plath, angry, depressed stuff? Oh, all kind of things. All kinds of things. All kinds of yeah. Some of it was angry, but it, mostly I felt lonely. Mostly I felt isolated. Mostly because I was at a, I was the only um, person of color 
and my at my high school for a while until my sisters came along and I and so there, and this was in the early late sixties early seventies. Oh so, right, I didn't know your age. Yeah, I'm kind of old. Oh, but, you look good. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's a superficial compliment. But, I mean, I can't as yet compliment you on the nature of your spirit, although that does seem to be in wonderful shape also. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so in the late 60s, you're... Uh, it was a time person. of turmoil, you know. Oh, yeah, it was a bloody right yeah. pain in the arse. Yeah, I so can't imagine it. I it, can't imagine it. What was it like? It, it was rough. It was it was really rough. And it's something that I think that the people around me could not help me with, help me uh, Understand, you know, my 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 sadness, my anger, my loneliness, and I think my parents did a tremendous job of connecting me to outside, you know, like the girls' club and the YMCA, and and I I had tools to help me work through things. Like that's why I love to exercise. It was such a a huge part of my life, swimming, uh. and um, I go to the gym almost every day now. If I didn't go to the gym, I like I don't know what I would do. Mm. I, I you have to work hard. You have to have I, personal disciplines to hold your stuff together, huh? That, yes, I do. I do. Yeah, I recognize that. What sort of what? Uh, who did you look to? You're saying that you know, like you're dealing with alienation, mm-hmm. loneliness, pain, and anxiety, and this is like it seems to me you're saying this is an ongoing negotiation. Mm-hmm. Who did you, when you were in this earlier position, uh, look to? Like, you know, like I'm sure them girls' clubs and YMCA. That's useful for a sense of community mm-hmm. and and to collectivize. But do, were there older people that were able to mentor, or were there inspirational figures that you look to? I think they were more inspirational figures. And, and I mean, I had a couple of teachers who were tremendously helpful, uh, who encouraged me to write. Uh, I had my uh, dance dance uh, instructor who was wonderful. And and there were other adults who were around. They, I, I wouldn't say that I could talk to them, confide in them, but they were, they listened. And um, so they were there and, and that was helpful. Mm. And now, an advertisement break. Christy Reeves is calling the Rebels of the World to join her on her Universal Broadcasting Network's weekly show, Rebel Hearts with Christy Reeves. The show is all about conversations with paradigm shifters to empower you to become the change you want to see in the world. Let's all join together and spark a global revolution of heart-centred empowerment, love and peace to raise consciousness and change the world. Rebel Hearts with Christy Reeves is available on iTunes, iHeartRadio and UBNRadio.com. Time now for Under the Skin. I want to ask you something. You're uh, an educated and lucid woman of colour in this country that is still so very much determined and defined by race. You're in a, a, a family with like sort of, I don't know, people with different racial identities. And it seems that I'm very interested in James Baldwin's analysis of racial politics in America and his idea that the the creation of the category of the Negro in order that the dominant empowered class needn't address its own psychological shadow in the context that we are discussing mental health in and the the idea that we could be talking at sickness on the level of a nation and the idea of the category of otherness as the receptacle 
for malady and for illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, it's been said before that the that the sort of the persecution of the Jews in the Holocaust was the Nazi ideology's inability to deal with its own darkness and shadow. And it's a sort of an, there's I see a comparable continuum mm-hmm. in the treatment and an ongoing repression of African Americans. Obviously, for me, this is a theoretical and academic exercise as opposed to a biographical experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in your take of that on the mm-hmm. way that racial politics still divides and divides this country. How do you see that from your position uh, as a person in a political power? No, I, there's certainly um, a lot of truth to that when you look at who's in our jails and prisons, when you look at how uh, people of color are written about when there's some terrible tragedy um, as compares to when a uh, Caucasian is uh, commits a crime, like the, the differences and how they're written about. Uh, people of color are are more often cast as uh, you know kind of animals, um, more mm. barbaric, uh, deranged, lunatic, whatever. I mean, the the, the language is so different, um, and it's. Um, I I think that James Baldwin had it right. You know, race is a, a social construct, but it it allows for. Uh, uh, it allows for a um, it allows people to not deal with the the root of the problems. Yes, it seems like that. It seems that it continues to be a superficial issue. It, it, you know, obviously, I'm can't speak to the actual experience and what it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just talking about it academically and analytically, and I'm mm-hmm. very cautious mm-hmm. to make that point. But it seems to me that this your country hasn't addressed this wound and that it is still incredibly recent and like from a distance it seems like something that's been worked through on the last episode of this show we were talking to the uh, british journalist gary young who lived in this country for a long time he's a a black man and he uh, he's talked about gun crime and he took a 24-hour period and talked about the sort of the the deaths of children in any 24-hour period and the reporting of these crimes and it uh, brought to mind the murder of Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. And I said I was in America when that happened and I remember the sort of the way that you're unconsciously invited to accept that it's taking place in a criminal context. Mm -hmm. Just the sort of news coverage, overhead helicopter shots, news graphics. So to create a kind of climate... Uh, of what I now know is called necropolitics. There are certain groups of people that it's okay to kill. There are certain groups of people that it's okay to be in prison. There are certain groups of people that it's okay if if they are murdered when they are children. That's know. right. That's right. There's a, a whole the narrative um, uh-huh. that that uh, continues to this day in our country that this is okay because these are bad people. Yes. So when you find yourself in this position and you're setting up like uh, something like Thrive NYC, a very mm-hmm. practical social tool where people with mental health issues and drug issues can reach out and get the necessary help, do you think, successful though it may be, that it can thrive, to use that word, in a, a cultural climate that still has so many unconscious, unaddressed problems? I do believe it can succeed because even though there are so many cultural unaddressed problems, we all still have these problems and people are in great pain and that cannot be denied. 
And so what I'm seeing is, you know, that we with NYC Well, for example, our, our helpline, that, that the number of calls is just multiplying. We've had to hire more people twice already. Mm. Um, we're getting ready to hire more people because we're getting close to 1,000 calls on, on many days. That's a lot of people who are suffering. Yeah. Um, and, and there are people of all backgrounds. Um, and I'm I, I, everywhere I go. Um, people want more information. That's why Cities Thrive was started, because we have mayors all across the country who want information. They want to start programs in their own cities because our federal government isn't helping enough, mm. right? And so they're looking to Thrive NYC as a model. We have Thrive London now. Yeah, they wow. were inspired by what we're doing here in New York City. The need is there. You cannot deny the the pain of the people. Um, and yes, we will be successful as long as this is what people really need. You and Bill, you're idealists, right? Now, like, people throw that word around as if it's a negative thing. That means mm-hmm. that there's something to aim for. You believe in humanity. You're ultimately optimistic about the possibility for human beings to live peacefully and lovingly, to be redeemed, to be to to live beautiful lives. Like this is no, my. I, I think I think that we believe that we believe in change. Uh-huh. We believe change is possible, and we believe that we can make change, and that people do have power. That most people shrink away from the power that they have and mm. don't take advantage. Advantage of what you know, what the tools that they have. I have this platform now as this yeah. you know, first lady, whatever that means. But I can speak out, and people are going to actually listen to me. That's what I, I think. I think. Don't think of myself as idealist. I think of myself as as a realist. That mm. you know, I can't. I'm not going to create heaven on earth, but I know that I can transform some people. I know that I can make more services available, you know, through Thrive, and I can inspire people. Um, and if I inspire people, those people may go and inspire other people. This is, a, this is how you create movements. Um, and, and we all, we, we have that power. Mm. Yeah, and you've, obviously you don't think that's the that prerequisite for that kind of power is that you have a, a loud voice or a position of obvious or legislative power do you think that anybody anybody the people that are used in this service that you know so much of mental illness is a feeling of disempowerment like you Mm -hmm. said loneliness and inability to affect and influence your own life feeling of being trapped you think that people are not accessing their own power on an individual level that's right because everyone has a story everyone has a story and if you just tell your story Right. Tell your story to anyone who will listen. Tell your story to your friends, your family, that that in and of itself is transformative. That's why I'm so so happy that you wrote this book, um, your book about recovery. It's important to, for people to hear these stories and to know that change is possible, that people can move from A to B to C, that it's possible. Recovery is possible. And that's that's the type of power. When you tell your story, um, it, it takes away the stigma, the, the power of someone to label you and put you in a box. It takes away that power that people have because you're claiming your power. Yes. It's been an interesting few years for me in that respect because I had a life that was completely consumed by a celebrity in Hollywood and I thought, you know, it wasn't what I thought it would be. I kind of, even though I preemptively understood this isn't going to be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, it sort of, of course, wasn't. And then like being really overtly politically engaged in my country in particular around issues such as housing and political inequality, mm-hmm. m- uh, media corruption and the establishment of 
false narratives uh, like, you know and I found that really difficult as well and like you know there is such a thing as the establishment there are certain ideas that if you talk about them you'll ex- you'll be brought down um so I suppose with this book, what I'm attempting to do is reach the source material, which is exactly what you're talking about, Shalane, is that people are the source of all this power. These ideas come from human beings. These great icons and heroes of the American civil rights movement, for mm-hmm. example, were just men and women that sourced that facility. Do you think... In a, particularly now having experienced bureaucracy at a state level in one of the greatest cities on earth, that it is possible to make change on the level of the individual in the face of the kind of systemic opposition, the entrenchant opposition that sort of tends to remain when the administrations change, when we change from Obama to Trump, when we change from Bloomberg to de Blasio. Do you think it's possible when systems can be so entrenched and are ultimately operating at the service of capitalist consumerism, what impact can ordinary people have? Ordinary people can have more impact than what they believe, what they think they do. Hmm. Um, But it does. I'm not saying it's easy, but um, people can do much, much more than than they think. But it does require having a a vision, having a, a goal, um, being having um, you know, public uh, social media makes uh, connecting with other people so much easier. Uh, but you you do have to have a strong vision, a strong uh, a goal as to where you want to want to get to and and what you want to do. It's got, it can't be just pie in the sky. Mm. I also think it's impossible as an individual. You know, like sort of. You know, we're not like athletes. It's not like if you train hard enough, then you. I mean, it feels to me, and even if you are an athlete, you need trainers, you need a community. Mm-hmm. Any of these great fig, historical figures, they've got a team of people behind them, mm-hmm. silently holding towels and putting up with tantrums. You know, and like so. This idea of a collective identity, this idea of new tribal identities, uh, is something I'm also interested in, of people coming together on the basis of the wound, of people coming together on the basis of shared experience of uh, of mental health problems or addiction problems. Because part of the solution for me has been support groups and Mm 12-step fellowships. It's been without which I wouldn't be able to stay clean. Are you interested in people coming together in forms of community that are not dominated by commerce? Because all of us, to some degree, in this culture, are asked to see ourselves in terms of our own economic value. If you ain't got a good job, if you can't contribute to this system, mm-hmm. you're cast out pretty quickly. Can you see a chance within this system for people to find new ways of collectivizing and coming together? I can, and, and it goes back to the power of lived experience. That everyone has that that you know that that story of the life that they've lived i what i love within thrive is our our, our peer counselor peer counseling program you know we are training uh, people who have had a um, a life with uh, mental illness substance misuse or both and um, training them to help other people right mm. so they are and and they can do support groups. They can work within schools. They can do um, – there's so many things they can do. The need is so great. But I love the idea of, of, of uh, people starting 
groups like that and mm. working within their own neighborhoods. You know, where that's going on within Thrive. Is it that people is are coming together for like groups, coming together, you know, doing their own support groups. Um, so and it's all peer led. Do you have sometimes professional counselors in case some of that mental CPR is required, in case someone acts out in a corner? Absolutely, absolutely. I'd like to go to one yeah. of those groups. We have, um, we have in our hospitals. Well, and not in our hospitals, but we have for our. Um, people who overdose on, mm. on opiates, what we do, we have a program, and I believe it's uh, 10 neighborhoods where we send a peer counselor um, to talk with that person who has almost overdosed because that's when they're most vulnerable. That's when they're in, you know, usually tremendous pain and ready to talk to somebody mm. because they don't want to be in that space anymore, right? They're they're more open and ready to listen. So if you, we have a, a peer counselor talking to that person, taking them by the hand and, and opening their heart and saying, look, you know, I've been there before. Let me work with you. Let me help you. Let me help you navigate your recovery. Um, and staying with that person, you know, as they, you know, get to their wherever they, they're going to go after they get out of the hospital. And that's to me, that's like that's the way we have to work because people need that people that they can identify with, somebody who knows um, the path. Right? Oh yes, right. And I see, uh, I see amazing opportunities for for peer counselors for people who have that experience and are willing to work with others to transform their lives. Oh yeah, because I think that there's sort of the continual charge of the suffering addict or person with mental health issues is you don't know what it's like and if the other person go well check this out i've done mm-hmm. this 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 and this and then it's like all oh, right you qualify to help me mm-hmm. you know like for me that's damaged people helping one another i think is an important part of the solution mm-hmm. do you have a comparable thing at the point of arrest you know when people are being arrested for drug related offenses mm-hmm. or mental health related offenses is it do you have a similar facility there or is that we, more complex? Well, we, we have a, one program in Staten Island. It's really is the program, but we're working on uh, a couple of diversion centers where we, so that people who, you know, if they're having an episode, a, psych, a psychotic episode, or um, they've been drinking too much or whatever it is, that they will go to a diversion center so that they will get um, medical treatment and not be thrown into jail or, or formally arrested, whatever it's appropriate. Um, it's, it's assuming they have not done no harm to anyone yeah. else. They will um, get, well, regardless, they'll get the treatment that they need. But we want these diversion centers to just keep people away from being incarcerated. Yeah, because it doesn't really help, does it? And like, no. uh, it's, well, the challenge is, is people need continued support. And me, I spend a lot of time around drug addicts and and people with mental health issues, and they're very, very annoying. Uh, like, a, like, so sort of, they're difficult people to be around. And I speak, you know, someone who suffers from those things. So it's very, very challenging. I sometimes think I'd rather be the actual addict than someone that has to put up with another addict. That can't be easy, what my poor mum's gone through over mm-hmm. the years, what my wife goes through to this very day. You know, it's sort of... We're asking a lot of people, do you think it's possible that we'll find different ways of coming together? Do you th- can you envisage some bizarre utopia? You've already said heaven on earth is not a possibility. But do you think it's possible that people, the damaged, the wounded, the needy, I think it says something on the bloody Statue of Liberty, could come together <laughs> to create a different kind of society? Yeah, of course. It's, it's happening. It's happening. And I have to go back to your book again because I, I love that you, 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 what you, you did, taking the 12 steps and kind of re- putting it into your own language, and, 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 uh, which I think will make it more accessible to people who, who, who are not believers in, mm. in God. 
to people who who need a, a different type of, of approach, right? Mm. But uh, the basics are the same. But um, you've you've made it more accessible to more people, and I I, I can see uh, people coming together out of need, right? Out of uh. need to find a way to be well. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got to do something. Can I ask you about spirituality? Where where do you stand on all that kind of business? Oh, I'm spiritual. Yeah, me too. I can't get enough of it. I mean, if the mm-hmm. material world without sort of limitless consciousness, I can't cope with that. I need some sort of asp- uh, some sort of connection mm-hmm. to the divine. Otherwise, I can't get up of a morning. I meditate. Yeah, me too. I do. Mm-hmm. I meditate sort of like a couple of times a day. I do mantra meditation. What mm-hmm. about you? What type of meditation? I just, you know, sometimes I use an app. Sometimes I just sit quietly and 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 breathe and you know. Yeah. To do nature. I, it, it varies. It depends. It, it seems obvious, doesn't it, that you would ha- that a human being requires some connection other than your role as a worker in a society or, or as a Guy Debord, the French situationist, would say. You know, when you're at work, you're a worker. When you get home, you're a consumer. You're advertised that. You're never free. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think that the reason people get involved in sort of bizarre acts of sexual deviance, you know, sort of like public indecency or scrambling about in a woodland looking for strangers to uh, consort with. I sort of think it's because people that lose access to nature, like, you know, you can't just be, you can't be an animal. The birth of my daughter was so incredible because it was in one moment I felt like the the fusion of animalism and divinity because to watch a woman giving birth is like a, like oh my god this is there's so much flesh and screaming and blood and roaring but still the presence of something powerful some new consciousness and I feel like uh, that part of the problem of our culture is we don't make space for the divine we don't make space for human beings to sit and reflect and religion has become such a complicated topic with what's happening internationally and geopolitically and some of the bigotry and prejudice that's tied into the old forms of faith, mm-hmm. that people now need new ways to interface with what spirituality is. And it's simply a way of feeling whole, a way of connecting with one another and mm-hmm. trying to be beautiful and not determined by just the baser instincts of our animal machine, the mm-hmm. machine we find ourselves deposited in temporarily, this thing that just wants to have sex and eat food and have status. And me as an addict, I feel lucky that I have it in such an exaggerated form because it meant it had to be addressed. It couldn't carry on because I think addiction is it's just an extreme version of being a person. And that's why I feel like this program will work for anybody. Like in conjunction with things like coming together and communicating honestly and mm-hmm. recognising that you need to help other people and that you're not the centre of the universe, which, by the way, is another thing that having a baby made very clear to me is that you are not the centre of the universe. <laughs> it will do that. <laughs> really done it so clearly, yes. too clearly, Trelane. I wish, As a matter of fact, I wish it was less evident, but when she's puking up on me or ignoring me or making me just hold stuff or screaming at me or punching me I think god I've really been diminished I used to be someone <laughs> now you're Mabel's daddy <laughs> <laughs> at best and I don't, I'm the guy that holds her stuff I don't even think she recognises the concept of daddy yet mm-hmm. what's coming then what do you want for what was the, for the future for the immediate future what are the goals for you in your position uh, politically but also as a woman and as a member of family, well, my my, my my goals are to make make thrive NYC successful. Mm. Um, it's only two years old, so we have a lot of work to do. I really want to make sure that it's successful in, in, in all of its iterations, especially in the schools, because um, we know we need to act early to 
to make sure that a child's life is as full as possible, full and productive as possible. Um, I want cities thrive to be successful, and and I want to inspire people to just take everything that we've done. And, you know, people can take it and and use it, and and we we want to encourage that because that's I think the only way we're going to change the culture. Oh, that's really, really beautiful goals. Shalane McRae, thank you very much for taking time to explain these things to me and to educate me. Because, you know, I'm doing this because I'm at university learning about religion and global politics. I'm trying to educate myself, and you've contributed to that education beautifully. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Give my love to all of your family. I will. The thank child you so members, much. the adult members, I any will. peripheral members that I may not have heard of yet. <laughs> all right. You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. If you like that, please subscribe on iTunes or the other one that your device hooks you up to. This is sponsored by me and my new book, Recovery. Give me a review on iTunes, only if it's five. Five stars, though, I, as you have just heard, I'm mentally fragile and criticism could break me. Russell Brand, under the skin. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you.